Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Obviously, if you're listening to me, you know that I have children and oftentimes I've struggled to put either my parent hat on or my interviewer hat on. Uh, today, I'm probably going to lean even more into the parent side of this. Uh, a lot of folks, their children are going back to school. I'm in the Southeast. My kids kicked off first full day uh, this week here in August, um, and we're really going to start this train across the country here in the next couple of weeks as well. That then yields a lot of um, topics uh, and issues and challenges and also opportunities for young people and their parents and the schools that they they go to and their educators that they interact with. Um, and it's really an important time to talk about young people and kind of where we are. And I thought today would be a great day to spend some time talking about a subject that maybe we don't want to talk about. Um, but I also think it's really critical and it's important for us when we think about mental health, we think about the way in which uh, we can put our kids and our, our families in a position to succeed. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Andrew Kahn. He's the Associate Director of Behavior Change and Expertise at understood.org. Uh, many of you know I, I'm a big proponent and fan of understood.org. Let me share a little bit about them. And then Dr. Kahn, or Andy, as he's graciously uh, said, we're going to go by first names today. <laughs> uh, understood.org is a nonprofit focused on shaping the world for difference. We raise awareness of the challenges, skills, and strengths of people who learn and think differently. The resources help people navigate challenges, gain confidence, and find support and community so they can thrive. Together, they can build a world where everyone can reach their full potential. Understood.org is a 501c3 organization headquartered in New York. For more information or to donate or to partner, you can visit them at understood.org. Um, let's chat a little bit about Dr. Khan. Andy, I can tell already, um, just chatting offline, I think we're really going to like speaking with him. I, I like his... There's an approachability about him, which is important, I think, when we're talking about people who have the background and the research and the application of that. But Dr. Khan is a licensed psychologist specializing in working with people who think and learn differently in his role as Associate Director of Behavior Change and Expertise. He focuses on ADHD, autism spectrum disorders, anxiety, general learning and behavioral challenges and learning and social emotional functioning. For nearly 20 years, Dr. Khan worked with within the public school system, providing training, evaluations, direct consultation, and therapeutic support to students, their families, and staff. He has worked closely with underserved communities struggling with the impact of poverty, food insecurity, and limited access to educational support. Additionally, he supported school committees to develop policies on mental health, suicide prevention, and access to learning interventions. Before joining Understood, he served as a clinician, a clinical director of a community mental health agency, and a presenter for Summit Professional Education on ADHD, autism, and anxiety for nearly 10 years. He was an appointee to the Maine Advisory Committee for School Psychology and an educator at the University of Maine. Andy, it's so nice to spend some time with you, and I thought it was important to get that background out. Um, opinions can come very cheap these days, and I want to make sure people understand the background that you have, uh, that, that you know, and you also uh, identify as a person with learning and thinking differences, which I love in your bio. Um, let's just start there. Uh, before we get into another survey, we want to talk about this based on school year and sort of the opening of the, of the season of school. Um, tell me what it means for you to identify as a person with learning and thinking differences. I don't want assumptions to cloud a discussion here. I want to be able to understand what it means to you, because I think that's applicable to probably so many people who are listening. No, I appreciate that. You know, the idea of being someone who has ADHD in my adult life, I'm considering myself neurodivergent, which means that um, neurodivergence is the concept that 
the neurological variations between people um, can represent in a whole variety of ways. So ADHD is one of those neurodivergent conditions. Um, as being a guy in my 50s, um, I went through New York City public schools early on. I was not diagnosed until adulthood. So, so much of my lived experience, just from the human side of things, was about understanding the experience of thinking differently, processing information differently, but knowing in my own heart and, and head that, you know, I'm bright enough to do this stuff. Why is this not working for me? So as a young person working towards finding career, realizing I was not going to be professional baseball, hockey, or football player, <laughs> as those dreams faded away, I realized, you know, I really like talking about this kind of difference with people and helping people feel sort of connected to who they are, learning to thrive and and finding ways to connect and interface with their worlds in a way that sort of I can do empathically because this is my life too. And also by way of getting education and, and being involved in the work. So, you know, for me, identity and and shared experience and lived experience is so crucial in what I do professionally. And now working with a nonprofit, you know, the nice thing is we're looking at reach and scope of impact and, you know, being in schools one by one, one classroom, one teacher, one family at a time was such rewarding, amazing work. But when the time came to have an opportunity to expand that reach and, and you know, much like yourself, Rod, being able to have audiences who can hear the wider messaging from people who are credible um, became a real press in my career. So that's that's sort of why I'm here both physically in this moment and, and with you today. And it's the power of language, what I'm hearing from you, in that, you know, there's this concept of what we might think is normal. I mean, it's such a, uh, uh, it's such a a moving target, right? And that it, the absence of clarifying that or digging into it, then automatically moves somebody in a young child, a student, right, or even an adult maybe who hasn't been diagnosed, but saying, well, wait a minute, is that so? If that's normal, is this now? abnormal in this society, right? And not understanding that we really don't have a concept of what, what potentially, what, what even normal means. I think that's sure. the power of a group like an understood.org and the background that you have to be able to put words to experiences. Was there a pivotal point for you where you thought about the power of communicating, not just your experience, but then sort of tying those those not those dots together for others to then understand potentially what they were going through, but they hadn't yet put words to it? I think I think that concept was something that I experienced very early in my career and in my life. The idea that I could say something to someone who was feeling othered or different or abnormal to, to you know, sort of cop the word yeah. and realizing that through communicating about experience, about research, about information, that I could actually, instead of having them live in the the, the two categories of normal and abnormal, and, and to be clear, normal is a statistical term. It refers to where you fall on a continuum. Um, when we talk about humans, you know, we're talking about we all have differences from one another. So normal is something that we use to classify groups. And I think when we use it in the individual sense, describing ourselves, all we can do is make things worse. And I think that's what happens. And I think when we talk about large scale systems, schools, governments, organizations and, and companies, um, they're trying to do things at scale, which means they're trying to put big categories together, but oftentimes losing the individual. So in my work, we're talking about how do we capture for the individual where they fit, how they think about themselves in the contexts in which they live, and how to help them find those environments that are good match, 
best fit for them to thrive and be who they hope they can be and, and, and to develop those skills through systems to get where they can be successful. So I think that's such the powerful piece for me. And I love that you said that it's a statistical term. I, I had never heard it put that way. That that says that speaks uh, that speaks to me, Andy. I, I think that's incredibly powerful. I'm a big believer that words are powerful. So to be able to clarify that in a way, uh, I think that not only makes sense for me, but I, I would hope for the audience as well in the way in which we understand that. Um, let's talk about tell me about the, the school stress study. Um, again, now I'm, I'm putting the dad hat on and I've got a, a brand new middle schooler. And so of course you're just flooded with your own experiences <laughs> going years back yeah. a tough time. Um, share with us some of the findings of the stress study. Um, but I, I would also say that I'd love to know, it's like reading a box score, right? That sort of, I'm a big sports fan, uh, but you know, after a game, every coach in different sports, they look at a different statistic that will maybe tell them really what the narrative of the game was. Right. So kind of look at this and share with me sort of the premise of the, of the school stress study, if you don't mind. And then in essence, what is it, if I was inside your mind, like, what are you looking for that says, aha, that's, that's something we need to pay attention to. That's potentially a blind spot if we don't give it the attention that it's, that it's warranted. Sure. So when we talk about studies like this, so as an organization, understood.org, we're, we're always looking to take the pulse of what's going on in our communities, because what exists in the real world in terms of statistics paints, paints a picture based on the perspective of the person writing about the number. And I think that that, that can be overly powerful. It can skew people's perceptions. As an organization, we're aware that people with learning and thinking differences experience the world in a different fashion. And most people who are neurotypical or folks who don't have those neurological differences aren't terribly aware of how that, how that happens and how that feels for other people. So we, we commissioned a Harris poll of 550 parents of kids under 18 for the purpose of finding out what are people really feeling about the return to school and the back to school experience? You know, and I think that we're really wired to this sort of social media image of the world where back to school culturally is really driven by media and, and really the marketing world, where we see these really attractive images of kids in new spiffy clothes, charging in the door to see their friends and high-fiving in the hallways and this really like living your best life social media presentation. And for kids with learning and thinking differences, I know from my experience and from the kids and families I've worked with that that's very different. But we wanted to grab some, some data to try to see, you know, how different is it? And how much do the populations of folks differ? So in looking at numbers, and again, I, you know, the thing, I, I love your, your metaphor for box scores. Um, as a baseball and, and sports fan myself, I, I used to study them as a kid. Um, and my dad and I used to sit and go over box scores and learn how to score a game. But really what I found most interesting when watching the, the sports is that people who could capture the statistics in qualitative terms to show me why someone or something is so important and so good. And I think that for me is where you unfold and unpack this. So while I'm going to give you some numbers, Rod, in the audience, I'm going to try to provide the color because I think that that's going to be, what does this mean is the most important piece. Um, first stat that we got that I thought was pretty telling that 87% of the parents in general, of all parents under the age of 18 in our population group, said that back to school season causes them stress or anxiety. That's a big number. That's, that's a number that surprised me a bit. You know, as a parent, I experienced it, but I, I have an 
sort of egocentric perspective, knowing that I'm an overthinker. So I don't worry or think about what my neighbors are doing. They all seem to be showing the same first day of school pictures. Everyone's awesome in front of the front door, showing their backpacks and they're they're excited and smiling. But you don't see how many of them were fighting to get that picture or how many how many are late for that first day of school, which were you at the burger house? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How many second day of school pictures were actually fooled for the first because you couldn't get it together on day one, right? So reality is is a little different here. The thing that was really cool, and we we then did a comparison of looking at parents of kids with learning and thinking differences, um, 94% of those parents were experiencing stress and anxiety. So, you know, for the, the lay person, that 7% difference may not seem like a lot, but 94% is virtually everyone who has kids who have differences. So what that's saying is the experience of back to school stress is present for all, but worse and more challenging for folks who have neurodivergent or kids with learning and thinking differences. So that that continuous finding of it's it's there for everyone, but it's worse for these folks is thematic in what we're finding. When we look at the, the little factors, the little statistics, things like um, parents feeling more stressed or things like feeling unprepared, what a, what a powerful word that is. How how challenging does does that make you like think about it from your perspective as a parent if you feel unprepared for what your kid needs to me that can rule my day as a parent absolutely and we're seeing yeah we're seeing parents of kids with learning and thinking differences substantially expressing feeling more unprepared than parents of neurotypical kids they're reporting words like feeling scared at a greater number and feeling lonely now for someone like myself who works a lot with with population now. The loneliness word is so meaningful because what it means to me is loneliness is evidence of a lack of community. Yes. Isolation comes from my my life is different. It takes more like I, I can't put myself together like I think other people are because what do I see? I see social media. I see television and everybody looks like they're doing better than you are because that's all they'll show you. But isolation is a powerful, powerful pain pill for folks to take. And I think that, so when we look at those pieces of the study, when you see unprepared, scared, lonely, those factors are heavy loading factors for parents that I serve and support through my organization. Other things that parents report for, for folks with learning and thinking differences, you know, at least a quarter of our parents are talking about stress and anxiety about managing something like an IEP, the individualized education program for their child, um, which is the document that's supposed to lead what they get in school to support them in their difference. And, you know, that's that's a big document. It's There's a lot of legalese in there. So when that discomfort is there, parents are starting off feeling less comfortable, less prepared, less informed, because those documents can be a pain to work through and, and can be challenging for families to decode. And Andy, what you're talking about, and I have been an advocate, this is years ago and in a past life, but I've been in uh, uh, my very fair share of IEPs um, as an advocate, so I understand exactly what you're talking about, um, is really what you're hitting on, at least one of the things I'm taking from what you're hitting on, is this, from the parent side of this, the adult side, which is my child or my children are entering a classroom and I don't know the adult potentially and or those adults that they'll be interfacing with. And there is a chasm that we want to hopefully collapse when it comes to the relationship built on trust, yes. right? That this adult that I'm handing you over to has an idea, an understanding 
of the way in which you learn, the way in which you can succeed. It's like my middle schooler yesterday, I had to fill out a survey for well-being, i.e. a school counselor, which I thought was very good. But it was a it was a narrative that I filled out as a parent. And of course, I have, you know, a bit of a cheat sheet just because of my background uh, in clinical psychology, mm -hmm. in a past life working with families and kids on the autism spectrum, all these sorts of things to be able to hopefully provide at least a picture of my child of when he does well, areas where it might be of opportunity and or challenge. But not every parent potentially has that bag of, of, of sort of vocabulary or ways to communicate some of these components. And so I'm wondering, just from, you know, are you finding in general, based on the questions that you get and maybe understood gets and that you've gotten just historically, that we're getting better on the public side, let's take schools, in fielding questions from parents and or being proactive in asking questions? Because sometimes I think the art of the question is, is a missing component there. Maybe we don't know what to ask that educator that will elicit a response that will sort of bring us closer together to create a plan, right, of success. Um, and or potentially the, the educator or the school doesn't know the question to be able to ask, to understand, you know, what's going on at home for Andy's children? How can we provide support? Like these sorts of things. So I, I'm just curious as to your commentary on where we are in our own sort of evolution or understanding of these differences in a way that honors, but is also inquisitive and respectful at the same time. Yeah, I think, I think that's a crucial, a crucial challenge is, is how do we bridge that gap, which I think you, you really really focused on properly, which is in the beginning of this process and the, the process, there's nothing quite like the idea that we have 13 single year episodes of having to get to know people, create the communication about this is who my child is. And I do think in communicating with schools as a parent, you have a unique opportunity to communicate who your child is, how your child does best and what things are most valuable to them. Because if you want to have a connection between parent and, and parent school and child and teacher, you have to have some sort of middle ground for that relationship to build on trust and shared experience. So by you, for example, Rod, sharing with me some of your like that you like sports, that we have some of these overlaps. For me, it was much easier to feel safe to share with you some of the things that are going on for me professionally, because I know that we have common ground. So for parents, you know, I think that the the beginning of the communication process is about giving those schools and teachers the best brief synopsis of if you're going to talk about what your child is struggling with everywhere humanly possible, talk about the strategies you know that are helpful to them. Because just giving a laundry list of this is hard, they can't do this, this makes them angry, um, is going to set the teacher up for feeling like, oh gosh, what's coming? Yeah, you're right? basically handing opposed, over this sort of bag of anxiety. It goes to mental health and just sort of that classic experience of the relationship was, Andy, I'm coming into you, please just take this metaphorical bag of, of, of stress and anxiety so that I can relax in here for 50 minutes, to your point. Right. And that is exactly setting up the educator for, you know, we need to think in a very supportive way that the educator is an extension of us and a great relationship. And this is this, uh, hopefully this doesn't take us off, but, you know, personally, when I hear of a parent that is in within a friend group or community group that has maybe a child with, that has thinking and learning differences, that that stress, it can be so, um, granular that there's a moment in time where they'll say to you after that first couple of days of school you'll maybe see them at the soccer field or something and they'll say it's it'll be like Whew, we really like the teacher or we're really nervous because they don't they literally don't understand and we feel like now we have to go into battle mode 
And that oh, yeah. frame of time, I don't think we, we appreciate because that to me really speaks and comes out in this survey that the, the collateral damage and that maybe I'm not trying to gaslight at all, but that it really is because that sets your year. Absolutely. It's totally, it. you know, in so many forms of therapeutic intervention, academic intervention, and even in interventions like learning to do meditation, one of the first things you have to do well is set the intention. And if the intention is, I assume that we both have positive intent in our communications. I assume that you're, that you are going to be an advocate with me and I'm going to to be a supporter of you in this relationship. Those component parts at the start of a relationship is like making a deposit in your trust bank. Yes. And I think before you can make any withdrawal of, I'm going to make a demand of you, I'm going to put something at your feet, you really need to have that level of common ground and that level of shared trust. And I and I think that one of the things that also is a is underemphasized, and may, I'm going to bring my own experience into this, um, as someone who is who is neurodivergent, but didn't have hyperactivity and wasn't overtly naughty. Um, if my parent had shared, "Hey, my child struggles with some of these things, and here are some strategies for you," if they didn't share that at the start of the year, and sadly it didn't happen because you know a child of the '70s, we didn't know this. Mm -hmm. But if that doesn't happen. The first thing that'll happen is the teacher will say, you know, everything looks just typical and fine here until something goes wrong. They stop doing the work. They start avoiding. They maybe start to act out because their ability to process the demand is inconsistent with their neurological ability to do it independently. And the more typical your child looks, or in the case of kids who mask, who fake it, who try to show themselves as all good to stay out of the spotlight, um, then the problems are going to come. So sharing that kind info about, I want to share with you the honest view of my child, but here are the hooks and strategies that work. And then asking the teacher, what kind of approaches and strategies do you use to help kids who are struggling? What's the best way for my child to ask you for help when they need it, if they're shy or uncomfortable? Things like, are you comfortable using a, a little cue card, a little piece of paper they can put on your desk subtly that no one else can see? Or a little signal like they're going to put their water bottle on the top right of their desk where you put a little red dot that says help. Like little things that can create a subtle way to let kids learn that they can trust that teacher, that they can, that for me, the key is always self-advocacy is a skill that we can shape. And if we create little abilities for families and teachers to work with kids in this and to create that trust, you're going to have a lot more success navigating things that are hard. And let me share a little dirty secret here. What you're talking about can apply to children of all backgrounds. And I'm not saying you're not saying Precisely. that at all. What I'm saying is that this is not this approach. Like I remember again, way back, you're, you're taking me down memory lane here, Andy. But when I was working with children on the autism spectrum, I I personally navigated and it felt right for me from a, a, um, a therapeutic perspective was around Stanley Greenspan and play therapy and being on the floor with a child. For some that didn't work. But I remember the, there were so many moments where I would say to myself, this interaction and what I'm being trained in could be applied sort of kid-wide. That this is about information and professional development and understanding the human in front of you. 
and the complexities, but also some of the similarities and the ways in which, I mean, just the red dot, like what a fantastic visual for me to paint in my own mind now. And I hope the audience caught that, which is to find ways to creatively work with a child that doesn't basically put them under the spotlight, spotlight, like they're being interrogated. There's a deposition to a seven-year-old or whatever that they've got to now be in front of the class. Now, an example of that for those that potentially are trying to find where there's some commonality is You'll see it when it comes to allergies with kids, that schools don't know how to deal with that. And I have personal experience where, you know, the answer is in elementary school, Andy, why wouldn't we put the kids who have allergies on the stage? Because, you know, most elementary schools, the classic, like there's the stage in the cafeteria. Well, why don't we the put the cafeteriatorium? Yes. <laughs> yeah, put them on the stage on a table by, by themselves so that everyone can identify. I can't have lunch with Andy because he's up at the allergy table. We're not understanding the mental health, like the impact that that has, right? So I think it's really important to underscore what you're saying for the audience that whether or not you have identified yourself or a child as neurodivergent, what he's talking about, and this is my own soapbox in this regard, and the power of an understood.org is that it is not just for one community. This is just to me about good common sense practice about we've, look, we've evolved. We understand human beings at a much <laughs> deeper level, hopefully, and it's really powerful data. So I don't know if you have thought on that, but I just think it's really important for people to understand this is not like, well, my child isn't what Andy's describing. So I kind of, no, no, no. This is, I think, best practice as we better understand how to interact with children in a way that is truly engaging. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could not have taken more of my sort of internal mantra out by saying what you said. The, the concept here is that you know, as a professional, I do not perceive the kids I work with as a diagnosed party or an IEP or 504 child. I see them as someone who has a different need for an environment. And good teaching and management methods that you use for helping kids ask for help, asking kids advocate for self, asking kids um, how to best communicate when you need something to develop skills like social skills, right? When I'm talking about the red dot, that to me is a developmental thing. If a very young child is really anxious and I was that kid, I would, I would have crawled under the desk rather than raise my hand when I was little. I was the under the table kid whose pictures was never taken at events because I couldn't take that attention. So if someone had been able to create a universal strategy for a shy kid or someone who might be able to just benefit, that's sort of the basis of like UDL, right? Universal design for learning. The idea around it is if you create a strategy that can be helpful to all, integrate it broadly into your classrooms and into your buildings. Because the upside for all students is that all students who learn to self-advocate will be more successful. That's about, I don't like making absolute statements, but that's an absolute and it's true. Okay. <laughs> you can provide this and it, the cost in 99% of the, the situations is nothing, is $0 is paying attention to it, realizing that if I can do strategies that don't single out a child that could be useful for any, then I should probably try to use it for all. And, and, and I think that to me is powerful. And there's a reality here as well, which is there's an economic reality. We're talking about IEPs, 504, is that sadly, there are plenty of schools out there that are well-intentioned, that are making decisions and allocating resources and behavioral special, all these different resources that may be human-based or not, like another person in there to support a child based on economy, but based on, you know, economies yes. of scale and resource. And because of that, it is very important, I think, what you just said, which is many of these things cost nothing. Right. Right. It, this is... 
this is not, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to sort of um, over-engineer this in that manner. But if we coming with this sort of universal approach, it could be simple as creating a language between myself as an educator and Andy as a young student with a red dot that says, you know what, you know, Mr. Rod cares. And, and, and because of that, I'm going to, we're going to kind of work together on this. We didn't need this IEP and or behaviors, but that you now can't pay for as a school district. Cause now we're creating this uh, friction between family and school and then provider. But those are some of the realities that people are dealing with. I remember in the early two thousands when California was paying for everything, I was seeing families that were moving from all over the country because they could get the hours that they needed. So for sure, it speaks to the desperation that parents are looking for resources and it creates what you're talking about with a the classroom there. This is where, where educator and family can really work in concert. Meaning if you're the educator and, and I'm the father and I've learned something that you're doing that's working with my child, my goodness, so many of these things can be applied within the house as well. Correct. Correct. W without a doubt. And, 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 the, and if we continue to talk about the sort of the economy of scale aspect of this, the one thing that we think about that affects neurodivergent people as much as anything else is stigma feeling different, feeling othered. So when you create strategies that are strategies for all, it, it's impossible to stigmatize what you're doing in that moment because it just feels like the big word, it's cultural. You create the culture of your space, your home, and your classroom by how you accommodate those who are different than you. And if you integrate that globally, you know, you see it, you know, Rod, having been in classrooms for years, when I'm in the kindergarten, first grade classrooms, Culture is just about everyone's equal. It's it's the it's the most utopian sort of culture because kids don't developmentally think about difference the same way. So if you have a purple elephant in the right corner and a pink spotted one in the back, that's just Jim or that's just Janie. They don't think about it. And they don't think about that even at times with being pulled out to do an intervention. But when you start to get to third grade and at worst middle school, difference is everything because the brain is now developmentally trying to sort normal, abnormal, good and bad, typical, not typical. So we have opportunities to define the culture of typical in that environment and in your home by doing things like this. So when you're parenting, you know, if you're providing some support for your child who has a learning and thinking difference, there's very little downside to providing it to your neurotypical child. It just becomes the culture and no one's feeling singled out. So I think, you know, I, yeah, I could talk about that all, all day. <laughs> and we all have week. examples in, in our, it, yeah. all over the place. I mean, if you have more than one child, I mean, you'll see siblings that to your point, as they get into that sort of second, third grade transition, it's all about equality, right? If yeah. you and I are brothers and you're a year older than me, I want everything that my brother Andy has had and more. Right. So we understand, yeah. we see this at home. We under, we could see where this applies within a classroom setting or environment. Let's talk and pivot a little bit about uh, and go towards resources. Um, you know, resources are powerful. Sometimes I'll, I'll quote, and I do this often, but I'm a big fan of, and I've, I've, I've spent a brief time with Daniel Pink, the New York Times bestselling author, you know, but he talks that, that we're in this phase right now. We're in this stage, I guess, of humanity where we are stimulus rich and context poor. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just a great way of conceptualizing kind of where we are in the, the the floodgate of information and data and resource. And oftentimes it's not that we doubt there's a resource. It's my goodness, how do we tell what is a good resource? How are we discerning as a parent or as an educator who wants to sort of add to their repertoire, even outside of class to build that knowledge base? 
talk with me about how you evaluate resources, if you don't mind. Sure. And also talk a little bit about, I know, I want, if you could touch on wonder. Um, Absolutely. A resource from understood, but really, so again, back to the box score, kind of what is a Dr. Andy Khan looking for when someone says, oh, Dr. Khan, I've got a resource. Help me understand the filters maybe that you process that information through. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think in the modern age with with wide open AI, chat GPT and Dr. Google, so to speak, um, there's no shortage of information. And then with social media, with TikTok and and all the, the things that people are receiving, how do we create filters? How do we create the best way to go about getting information? So for me, the first thing I look for in a resource is I look for expert vetting. If I'm reading an article, I want to see somewhere that I want to see who the author is, and I want to see if it's been reviewed medically or psychologically reviewed by someone who has credentials. And I'm looking at that on articles because even in the mass media, and I've, you know, I do lots of media interviews and I'll get on media outlets. Um, but really, I actually look more closely at the things that are coming from sites where they're showing medical or psychological review. They're looking at people who are vetting what is being said and organizationally. So for example, you know, we, that's the heavy standard. So at, you know, at, at understood, we have our u.org website where we are perpetually using our, our crew of over 90 experts across all fields of education and mental health um, and, and speech and language. And we are bringing in experts to regularly vet everything we write, the videos and podcasts we put out, because I think People need to, you need to be trusted in what you provide so that families are getting the correct information. So when I go to a variety of websites, you know, if I go to Child Mind or I go to, you know, a variety of these, these other sites, I'm looking at that, you know, organizations like JED, um, these are organizations that vet their research, that show you who is vetting it and you can follow the thread. And they're going to give you references. They're going to show you where the studies are instead of just alluding to some research shows and then they don't show you the research. You know, that means they've interpreted it. So I want to be able to follow the thread of information. So for me, that's one of the reasons I work where I work, because I am on a daily basis reviewing articles from our research team, um, watching and listening to the podcast to see, hey, did we get did did you guys say something that was far afield that's going to lead the audience astray? Because we organizations have a responsibility to provide good information. And you'll see that very quickly when you review sites online. And I think that's really helpful. Going to sites, you know, federal sites like the CDC at times, um, National Institutes of Health, these are places where they can be really helpful. The data isn't always audience friendly because they're <laughs> written from the technical sense. Yeah. But again, you know, I assume that all parent parents are developing experts in their own lives and they're the first and best expert in their child. We just want to give them access to that best conduit. And so Rod, when we talk about data and information, articles, videos, podcasts, that's one aspect of it. When we talked earlier about the idea of loneliness um, and I use the word community, um, community to me is probably one of the most important aspects of mental health. If someone feels engaged in a community and feels connection, the probability that they feel that they have support available to them, that they have people they can trust or they can reference, um, is going to make a massive difference in them addressing neurodiversity and their own experience. So when you look for community, that's one of the things that I'm super excited. So we have an app that we call it's Wonder, W-U-N-D-E-R. 
And Understood created this app, and now it's available both on iOS and on Android. Um, and it's designed to give parents a space to connect with one another, to share information about their children's learning and thinking differences. But we have a variety of, we have hundreds of different communication areas where there are threads, and we have experts who are on the site, who are posting weekly, interacting with the audience, answering questions, and that combined with hundreds of curated resources, articles, videos, and linkages to reputable information. But for us, it was about creating this ability for people to log on to something that provides them with access to highly vetted information, but the interaction of community. So when our parents don't have to feel alone and say, wow, I just read this post from someone in Michigan and their kid had the same exact thing happen or they're having problems with their 504 too. There, there's something so stress relieving about knowing that you're not isolated. Shared experience. Problems, yeah, I, I think for me, the power of technology and, and coming out of COVID, this is when you create good technology and, and appropriately vetted ways of connecting with one another, you can create things for people who might not have had any other access. I live in central slash northern Maine, and our ability to connect people is extremely limited. People will move to a community because we were serving, you know, great programs in, in X, Y, or Z school where we had either an autism focused program or executive function training programs where people couldn't get this anywhere else. So community means a lot, but for the digital world, you know, really being able to use something like wonder, um, u.org and to access our, our other, you know, resources, National Center for Learning Disabilities and, and Child, Mild, Child Mind Institute. These are great resources for folks to get information to, and I would say this very carefully that I say with, that I do in therapy, dose yourself out, give yourself little chunks of information at a time and let it sit. Because if you want to help your child, the first instinct from parents is to consume everything. And all that can do is make you confused. So when I work with families in the community, I'll give them one or two things to read and say, you have to stop here. <laughs> <laughs> you have to stop yourself because you're just going to become too overwhelmed. I, I'm so glad you brought up the com the comprehensive nature of wonder because I was going to ask you for advice that you would give parents. I, I think one risk that we take just in life in general is that we just assume people sort of, we all start with the same knowledge base uh, and understanding just from even a sheer vocabulary perspective. And I I get a little bit reticent when I think about message boards that aren't sort of pulled together with vetted resources and all these other things, because now all of a sudden I'm sort of pulled in from an emotional perspective in creating a shared experience with people that I don't know, but there's a message board. And now I may be taking advice from a well-intentioned parent and wherever, but that doesn't mean that it applies and, or it could create more confusion. Um, and maybe loneliness in the end. And I wonder if you have any advice for the way in which maybe a family starts out into sort of sharing in a communal sense, um, like a best practice to be able to do that. Because I think, yes, they can be beneficial, but I would agree with that they need to be sort of within the context of opportunities to connect with vetted resources and ways to apply what someone else's experience is to the research and the available resources. Yeah, I think I think part of what you're talking about, Rod, is the idea of goodness of fit. The idea that I'm going to, I want to be connected to a community that may be an appropriate fit for the things that I'm looking for. And the best way to do that for, for folks using apps like Wonder and going online is, is to take the initial approach of, of sort of being a lurker 
Take your time to read and observe and see what kind of posts are there. And also see what the responses are to the posts that might seem a little in, out in left field to you. Um, we have moderators on our site. So if something really, if someone was to mention something dangerous. What a key or point. About, I hope everybody heard that. A yeah. moderator on the site. Yeah. And we have numerous moderators and, and they routinely will say, so I... I'm one of the reviewers for the posts and for the posts of experts. So I will routinely get a message from a moderator saying, Hey, I saw this message on one of the posts. Can you help me formulate a response? And I'll give uh, an expert vetted response on here. Here's some of the things about what you're saying, provide access to resources, connect them with other, with other information. Um, the purpose though, is to make sure by, by lurking first and reading before you leap in is hopefully being able to see, okay, does this seem like a good fit for me? Are they, is this site doing things that doesn't create the wild west, you know, which is unfortunately what we see in TikTok and a lot of the social sites, lots of stuff that help people feel like they're connected or communal in a sense, but not necessarily in the sense of giving them information that can be most meaningful and most appropriate to actually what's happening in the real world. And I think that's that's the balancing act. I love seeing goofy videos on TikTok that that really help people feel like, wow, like my thing, the things that I experienced that maybe are a little goofy and off happen to lots of people. And that's so cool. At the same time, you know, an influencer on TikTok may not be my best avenue of getting information on my own healthcare. You know, yeah, it might not be. Okay, let's put a let's put a wrapper on this discussion, Andy. With this, so I want to, if you don't mind me, um, a personal question in this in this manner. So, what does it mean for you, um, not Doctor Khan, but Andy, to go from a kid who would uh, most likely be hiding under a desk? to not just sort of understanding yourself and finding a career path of meaning, but to be a public face and voice and advocate and filter for so many people out there. I'm, I'm not trying to say that, you know, you're Zeus out there and, and you know, <laughs> with a lightning bolt kind of a thing, but, but it is such a, it's a fantastic story in the arc of a, of a young person that can find themselves in this world and then apply that in a way that advocates and advances the conversation. Do you fall asleep at night with a sense of pride, a sense of responsibility? Is it you kind of think, wow, that that kid came a long way. I think that's important because for young people, sometimes we we screwed up as adults, Andy. We we don't act as if we've been in their shoes. We were, you know, we've been born this way. You were born, Dr. Khan, and that's not the case at all. Uh, trials and tribulations right. and successes and celebrations, and you're here now advocating. What is it like for you when you lay down at night when you think about your role in this uh, in this discussion? I experience a lot of gratitude because I think that one of the the thing for my own life experience that that I try to echo to folks is that I ended up where I ended up as as a virtue of some luck, some opportunities that accidentally fell my way, and that there were a handful of opportunities where I was able to really show what I knew and and found places where people really valued my knowledge and my communication skills. And that allowed me to make enough mistakes in the process and still fail like mad. I mean, I my failures continue to stand out to me as educational, much more so than my successes, um, because it, the things that I learned from messing up or from getting fired from a job or um, having something not go the way that I thought it should forced me to evaluate what it is that I was going through. So if I my takeaway, I don't know that I... 
I get a lot of enjoyment out of seeing other people have that aha and seeing other people go, oh, like seeing them deflate from someone else gets this. That's probably the biggest fuel that I receive. And that I feel that because of what I've been through, I have a responsibility to help people create pathways and, and conduits to finding what I have found with less challenge than I experienced. Um, I think that's the that's the takeaway responsibility I feel because I've been gifted things. You know, I my ability to communicate, the ability to think I have, listen, that's just some genetics and some things that happen to me that I'm I'm blessed with. At the same time, people helped me on my path. People gave me second chances. And I want to help other people learn about themselves in an honest way to learn about resources that can help them find path and work towards thriving and feeling understood in who they are. And for my first time professionally, that's how I feel. I can say to someone in my workplace, I know that seems to make sense to you, but I have no idea where to start. Or can you help me break that down into a to-do list and tell me the most important things you need? Because I, I'm in some sort of paralysis in my brain right now because of my ADHD and my neurology is just not participating, cooperating. And people don't bat an eye because I am open about where I am and I'm in an accommodating and, and an environment that values neurodiversity. And I think that's something that I want to help share with other people. I want to help people find path and evaluate how to get there without falling in as many holes as I did and other people did. Well, as we close, I, I, I'm going to put you in the good human category, and that I, I, that's very important to me. I think it's, um, I think sometimes the medical community, the mental health community, uh, does itself a disservice by not tr not understanding the power of relatability, and you bring that in spades, and you do so in a very from a very humble platform. Uh, I think understood.org is incredibly lucky to have you, and I, I hope the audience has really enjoyed hearing your perspective, the transparency, and also the professionalism and scholarship that you bring. Uh, you can check out understood.org to learn more about their stress survey, uh, school stress survey. You can also go to u.org and check out the Wonder app. That's W-U-N-D-E-R. We want to thank Dr. Andrew Kahn. He is the... Um, Associate Director of Behavior Change and, Expert and Expertise at Understood.org. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.